Welcome to the Witches and Wine audio experience. They just want to bypass all their shadows. Imanda, in many ways, is it externalizes our devils and makes you confront them. If you choose to wrestle with them further, you can learn a lot from taking them to tea and, and making allies out of them. Imanda has developed a reputation for being a cult of of gay people and transvestites and transsexuals and prostitutes and gangsters. What it is is there's no morality imposed. So they want you to be honestly you. I can see why religions would think, oh, these traditions are devilish, demonic, because you're constantly going against what religion is trying to get you to do, which is only deal with the love and light. with the dead in Kimbanda? Yes. The dead form the basis of most African traditions. Uh, the, the, the sacrifice of our ancestors to, to, to make our lives, to make our bodies, but also the knowledge. When you're dealing with an oral tradition, imagine that what you hear is transmitted through the breath of an elder and then out your mouth to someone else. So our very knowledge itself is transmitted from the dead within Orisha tradition, it is said, the dead give birth to Orisha, which is a sign showing that Orisha are manifesting right now around the world as people. And some of those people choose to become priests, but that I am made to Obatala, that Obatala is living life in me right now. That is part of the mystery of it. And that when I die, part of me joins the great Obatala-ness that is the conglomeration of everybody who's ever been a child of Obatala. That is how we view things. So the dead are constantly feeding in to what Arisha are. People who have lived exemplary lives, that after their death, we realize there's something divine about them. We identify what Orisha they were, were, if we don't know, we'll identify what Orisha they're like, and they're becoming very similar to Orisha. I recently was uh, at the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in uh, Cornwall uh, for the conference in May, and... Uh, Tim Landry was speaking. He's an anthropologist, out in, I believe, Connecticut. Um, and I really appreciated a lot of the things he was saying. And I look forward to his book when it comes out. Um, but talking about the translation of Lua, of Orisha, of these deities as gods does them a disservice. Because in the West, we've very anthropomorphized our gods. Um, there's this idea that they are men in the sky or ladies in the water as opposed to the water itself that has consciousness or the ground beneath your feet that has consciousness. So he proposed the word presence as a better translation for these spirits and deities, that that rock has something with it. I don't think it's human. It's something else. It's watching me. That This particular area of the forest, this clearing has a presence 
and there's a spirit associated with it. It might manifest as a person for some. It might manifest as a deer for others. It might manifest as a bunch of centipedes in your dreams. But that presence is something there. We can say divine, but I, it could also be demonic. But let's use divine as a larger context for the other world. These, these presences that are out there in the natural world, in the seven kingdoms of Eshu, that we are interacting with and that give results and guidance. And that in time, can pacts can be made with and those pacts honored. Um, it is said that there's more Eshus and Pomerzudas being made all the time. And this could be everything from a prominent new plant to a new street drug that has a presence and almost a consciousness of its own. And part of this is based in Congolese ideas about what sacredness is. That the Bible itself is an Nkisi because it's a conscious entity. It's an entity that has so much with it that people believe by putting something in the middle of its pages, it does something different. That swearing on it does something. A force of godness. It is not necessarily the god it says to be, in the sense of like, is that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in those pages? No, but it is a bridge to something, both by the words on its page and its physical object. And Kimbanda uses the natural forza um, in the world and harnesses those things together to make shrines, to make charms, to affect spell work, and the labor of cooking offerings and things like that to, to seal packs, to say, if I give you this thing, will you do this thing for me? And that's its basic level. On the possession level, then things are starting to come down and have more complex relationships, because now that rock in the forest that you didn't know what it was is coming and possessing someone and talking to you. And it's saying, I want these few things, take it out to the rock in the forest tomorrow. You're like, okay, I guess that's where this spirit lives. You Is take your dirt background from what Kimbanda what led you to making all these oils? Because the way that you're talking about these natural elements, I mean, there's so there's many ingredients in your oils. Yeah, the oils come out of a, a an exploration and kind of maybe a grand unification theory of how many of these things work. And uh, it was not, it was something that my, uh, my, my, my co- proprietor, Troy, at the time really wanted to, to make things to sell and, and do that. And I I've always done things privately, but the oils come out from Kimbanda. They come out from exposure to Orisha tradition. They come out from European witchcraft as well, which is still part of my practices. Comes out from uh, folk Catholicism in, on the Mexican side and, and those amazing ways of dealing with things. It's just, for me, I have never embraced the kind of modern perspective that if you put a bunch of ingredients together, that they're just going to work automatically. You know, they've got to be empowered by a spirit in some way. And if that's your spirit, that's one thing. And I think a lot of modern witchcraft kind of works on that way, but I don't believe in the psychological model that it's all in, that it's all just symbol. It's not just symbol. There's something more than. When I think about some of the oils, the ingredients that I read, and I mentioned before, there's that one oil where it's like you get the, the graveyard dirt from a strong-willed woman, and you add that into, mm -hmm. so you're putting her spirit. I mean, that is a type of necromancy, yep. right? There's That's necromantic magic. And I'm wondering, okay, first of all, how'd you get that formula? Uh -huh. Secondly, how'd you do it, <laughs> right? And thirdly... Uh -huh. What sort of results did you get from it that made you think, oh my God, I need to start making these oils in bulk? Even when we list ingredients, we never list all of them because that's just, you know, it's our own way of guaranteeing that, that our formulas are ours. We have a weird combination of traditional recipes that we fight for that I have collected over the last 20 years. A lot of the same formulas are extremely traditional. There are, for instance, three different Cyprian and three different Justina oils and a 
a third one, uh, seventh one, sorry, um, that uh, combines the influence of them all. There, none of those are, recipes are original. They're all based in different traditions of those saints from around the world. Um, I might modify them because of ingredient scarcity or find a substitute, but a lot of it is still going to be asking the spirit what it wants um, and seeing that. Sometimes oil recipes are given directly by a spirit that one of us works with directly. And that, that type of thing issues the kind of mentality of like, it's just a bunch of herbs in an oil and those herbs together make a medicinal benefit for you because an ingredient might be a stolen sigh. An ingredient might be a broken promise. An ingredient might be um, graveyard dirt from a strong-willed woman. An ingredient might be um, the burnt 33rd page of 33 books. Um, it could be all these things that by a materialist perspective don't quite make sense because we don't recognize what it is about them. But if I tell you that it's 77 steps forward and one step back is one of the key ingredients in an oil, you can sit there and wonder why it is, or you can put the ingredient in there and see what the oil does. Does the oil do what the spirit says? How do you put that ingredient in the oil? Ah. So you have, you have your collection of ingredients and it has a lid on it most likely. Or you have a way to start and start it with cloth over it. You start by pulling the lid or the cloth off. Count your 77 steps forward and one step back. Put the lid back on or put the cloth back on. So when you're putting in an ingredient like a broken promise, you're putting the cloth yep. on the oil and then you're thinking about a broken promise when you take off the, well, the cloth? No, I would say that a physical token is better. So 77 steps forward, one step back. What could you do? You could also have a foot track from you know a piece of the dirt under your shoe as you did that. You could have a piece of your shoelace or, or whatever it is that just did that thing of, of a broken promise. I'll leave your imagination for different ways a physical token of that is. Um, a physical token is always better. Um, a stolen thigh, you can always put cloth over the face. Now, these are just small things. You also have to have the recipe that, that, that says why this thing does. And oftentimes, the recipes we can look at after, after it's received, after a spirit says get these 80 things together and do these instructions with it, and in 40 days, you'll have an oil. Okay, we make the oil. We, we, we say, okay, I, this, everything the spirit has trust, has done before has worked out. So we might test it out with a few people, and then eventually we will sell it. Um, some oils we have taken out of commission just because we don't like what they do. We don't, you know, it's, it, it's an interesting agenda, and you have to be responsible about certain things. Other things, scarcity of ingredient, you know, can't get an ingredient anymore because it's no longer legal to get. So, you know, it's, it's, you have to be careful about those things. Astrologically elected oils, once the elect, once it's gone, I can't make it again, you know, unless there's another election of the same, of the same strength. So it's, um, there's a lot of variances into what those are. And they do combine a lot of different theories and different magical systems as well. Some oils are strictly from a certain vantage point. Other ones are from another. Let's say that somebody listens to this interview and they're like, oh, cool, I'm going to make my own oil. And they're just collecting a bunch of like, dark ingredients like you know like graveyard <laughs> soil and they're also a token from like a murder scene and let's say they put all those ingredients together and they uh, they do it during some sort of like dark election I mean technically that would be like a an oil to curse somebody right or is it just it just can't be anybody who makes these oils it, I wouldn't necessarily recommend our oils are rarely designed we don't think about the ingredients going in we are getting them from either traditional recipes that we have that are tested and true or there are directly spirit contact that is saying get these things and do that the list of ingredients is only one thing you know a good baker can be told a temperature and a time and a list of ingredients and probably still make it but 
that's because they know when to fold things in, when to sift things in, when to cream the butter and do all those types of things. So some of that comes from experience. Sometimes it is um, a spirit that's enacting it. Like the, the recipe for Cyprian oil that's out there, uh, the Brazilian, the Kimbanda one, calls for a certain amount of ingredients, but it also calls for the oil to be sat by St. Cyprian or Eshemea Noichi for nine nights. So if you don't have, what does that mean? In a Brazilian context, it means that the spirit is settled, that there is a shrine to that spirit, and that's not something you can make by yourself. So the oil is empowered by the spirit itself directly, but could you get all those ingredients and put it together? Yes. Is there a reason people buy it still from us? Yes. If I didn't have to do the extra step, I'm not going to do it. Um, it's much easier to just say, here, you have a bad mood, get some frankincense oil and put it on a diffuser um, and start there. You know, I don't need you to, to, to have a mood elevating oil that's anything else besides that. But if there's a spirit that says, no, if you, if you put these ingredients together in this way, it is based on our spirit contact and how it works. So as such, these are our contracts, which I suppose is very in league with Kimbanda in that way that we are the contract brokers. These spirits have agreed to work and be in these oils. If they don't, or if the contract they decide and it wears out, then it's gone. Then we take the oil out of commission. I have to admit, like, I'm <laughs> so fascinated by Kimbanda now. Um, the, the idea of having all my shit exposed and, like, having sort of the spirit be, you know, we all have that one friend who, like, just keeps it real, like, 100% mm -hmm. all the time. And sometimes you're just like, oh, my God, get out. But I'm also afraid because I don't know if... Oh, yeah, that's, that's healthy. That's healthy. Like, uh, I had a, I had a, a goddaughter put it very well once. It was like, imagine having a friend that sticks by you through everything, and when you decide to rob that bank, they're going to be the getaway driver, and they're going to go in there with you, and when you get thrown in jail, they're going to laugh their ass off at you that you got caught. You know, you could, it, it's, during my own initiation, there was a spirit that came down, and I quote her all the time, and that she showed me the whole, the sentimentals that were in front of us, and said, Never kneel to us. We are not gods. We are not gods. We would sooner eat you than this. But we are sometimes friends, and we are always assholes. <laughs> so I like to think of them as the friends that you invite over, and you know your house is going to get trashed, and the neighbors are going to complain, and there's going to be a fight somewhere in the night. But you will learn a lot, and you will have had a good time by the time it's done. Now, there are a lot of people that come because there's a lot of alcohol and smoking. But that's also misunderstood, too, because getting drunk is not the point. When the spirit comes, the drunk goes away. You know, the person immediately is sober. and Or the person has one drink and they're gone and their possession starts. But also, it's, it's also much like trying to control a mosh pit. The traditional structures of the temples place a container around it that is repeatable for result purposes and safe in that Someone, an estrogen might come down and start beating someone, but they're beating that one person because they're pissed off. They're not just going to pull out a shotgun and start shooting everybody. That's not how this works. Wait, do you mean like a literal, like, beating up of somebody physically? It, I've, I've seen it before, yes. Wait, you mean like there's something invisible that's just beating somebody up or it possesses somebody else who beats that person up? But that's someone else. The person can come, become possessed by the spirit, which they will beat themselves up or put themselves in a punishment where they'll lock themselves in a small container, this type of thing. You hear more stories about this uh, in the old days. It doesn't seem to happen as much. It is this threat of what they are needs to be examined in that way. Is it all feel good? Are they always going to be like, oh, I'm just here to help you? No, they have their own agenda. And all spirits lie. I will firmly repeat that. Uh, if you look at the 72 Key of Solomon demons, um, that you might have a patron king, 
and a few spirits that are really close to you. But if you know if you call this other spirit number 67, you're going to have a bad day, and then you never want to call them again. The same thing happens in Kimbanda. How are ATRs related to the Day of the Dead? Like, first of all, what is the Day of the Dead? So going into some, like, Catholic folk magic stuff there, the Day of the Dead is a Catholic celebration. November 2nd, Dia de los Muertos in Spanish, Dia de los Antepasados, or Las Animas. Um, so the Day of the Souls, the Day of the Departed. Is it like Halloween in, in South America, or is it a completely different thing? It's related. It's related. But Halloween is picked at that time in the sense that Halloween is All Hallows' Eve, which is based on All Saints' Day, which is the day before Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead, in the, in the more popular conception of it, is heavily influenced by Mexican ideas about what that is. There's a lot of influences there that deal with um, native cosmology as well as uh, Spanish overlay. Day of the Dead is the day that it is believed that the dead can come back and share share our space with us, share our share our a meal with us. It is the day that graves were cleaned up um, in Mexico. In the United States, different groups from Mexico that historically have nothing to do with each other except for the unification that they're in within the boundary of Mexico now have contact with each other and start comparing traditions. And I might, my family's from the north and the central part of Mexico, I might start having exposure to Oaxacan, which is southern Mexican cuisine and dances and cultural things around Day of the Dead that is now incorporated into Dia de los Muertos celebrations in Little Mexico in Los Angeles. And everybody's bringing their things in. And a new tradition evolves that is piecemealing things from all over Mexico to kind of put it together. But that one tradition never existed intact like that. We're never juxtaposed all together in the past. At its basic heart, there is an altar set up that is, in the old days, was a step altar um, because of the, the, the comparison to a mountain. Mountains are the source of rain, which is wealth and, and fertility. Um, but pictures of the dead are put up. The favorite foods of the dead are put up. Orange is a predominant color because of its, the belief about that bright orange. Uh, connects us to to uh, the soul that is the personality, the three souls of the body in Mesoamerican cosmology. Um, also, the fact that Day of the Dead, at least in central Mexico, was celebrated originally when the monarch butterflies came through, which were believed to be the returning souls of warriors that had died in battle. And so it was a day of triumphant dead, of thanking those soldiers who had died uh, and this color, bright color orange that's on monarch butterflies, this was actually in August originally, um, sometimes into September. But the church could not banish that tradition. So what they did is they transposed it to the Day of the All Souls, which is said to traditionally, All Saints and All Souls were traditionally said to originally those dates picked because of their correspondence to Halloween, to Samhain, to the, the, the Celtic festivals of the dead, and the turn and start of the year. Like Samhain, you know, means November. You know, it's it's, uh, it's 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 just it's the time of year as to what it is. Having certain foods, having the the predominance of sugar skulls and these treats and things like that, are uh, are a very public way of looking at Day of the Dead. But ultimately, it's still about cleaning off the graves and tending to the elderly that are still alive, telling stories about the dead, sharing the memories of them, learning from your elders about what it was like when they were children and what your grandparents or great grandparents were like. Um, to kind of perpetuate that that memory because the, the the final death is when no one remembers you anymore. This is a an ancestralization process that reflects a lot of uh, indigenous beliefs and Mexico itself with its 
380 distinct indigenous groups still to this day. It can be a lot of different practices that look like somewhere that the next town practices, but the way that they do things are slightly different and has gained so much popularity in the last two decades, especially after the internet and the kind of the trappings of Day of the Dead of sugar skull makeup and things like this. Face paint was not necessarily available. You used white clay and made a skull face. There wasn't all these detailed things. You know, using sugar and marzipan to make little sugar skulls and, and frosting that's colored and writing the names of each dead person on these, on a skull. Or when I was younger, uh, there were a lot of uh, uh, celebrations down in Overa Street, which is like the, the old little Mexico area of Los Angeles. My grandfather was a glassblower there. And uh, so we were involved kind of with the different cultural events that happened there. And they used to talk about how everything on the day of the altar was destroyed afterwards, except saint statues and photographs of people. That like all the cloth, all of the flowers, all the sugar souls were all taken to nature and burnt or put in the river or, or ripped up because it was a new offering every year. And now people save the same stuff every year. And it was just, you know, it's, things are made out of plastic, so they last longer and don't get ripped up. And it's an interesting thing. It's evolved. And the church endorses a lot of practices because it, it doesn't, and they're still registered Catholics. They're still paying money. They're still doing the holidays and coming in. And they want those members' numbers. You know, it's still about land and power. And um, that's not completely meant to be uh, uh, jaded. But, uh, you know, my idea of what Catholic is is very different from, I think, what, what Protestants think Catholicism is. Because of what we talked about with, like, that conversion factor, the world is Catholic. And in Mexico, there is Santo Buda, meaning Buda is just another saint. Santo Ganesha, you know, Ganesha is just another saint. It works for people, therefore it's a saint. If it's doing the work of God, it's a saint. If it's not doing the work of God, it's not a saint. It must be the devil. So, like, that rock, that piece of toast, whatever it is, can become a saint. It was Gertrude Stein who said in Mexico anything can become a saint. It was very true in the way it is. If it works, it's of God. It's a very shamanistic point of view. In Kimbanda, what happened, the Congolese faiths were demonized very quickly um, in the New World, uh, both wherever they went, Cuba, Brazil, and... Uh, they were told they were worshiping devils. So at a certain point they said, we're worshiping devils? Okay, fine, we're worshiping devils. And they made their statues of those spirits as devils. Whereas the Orishas were viewed as saints because the Yoruba were incredibly um, metropolitan society with a strong code of ethics. They um, were directly here as a result of a slave rebellion amongst their own slaves and were in, sold off into slavery themselves and brought to the new world. But they had a lot of this very metropolitan uh, extremely detailed cosmology, uh, very intact civilization that was, was, was brought. And their spirits were depicted as saints from the early days, whereas the Congolese ones were always referred to as devils. And are always Congolese religion and spirituality is viewed as hot, um, viewed as of the forest, of those wild things that run around at night in the forest and set fire to things. And, you know, in Brazil, for instance, there is the saying, um, God is big, but the forest is bigger. And this comes from the slave trade era when the Portuguese would bring slaves over. If the slaves could escape and run into the forest, the Portuguese did not follow them because it's a big, scary jungle because there's giant snakes, there's wasps that'll sting you and you'll fall dead in 30 seconds, and it's hot. So they said, screw it, let's just go get more. And so if it was this whole thing of God is big, but the forest is bigger. Just get to the forest, escape. And you will, you will live a new life. You will escape. And so these quilombos and other societies of runaway slaves started. And that's where you get the origins of things like the Kondomblade temples, these things surviving 
and forming new villages and mixing with indigenous people's spirituality and learning that herb lore and preserving these things in that way. So these spiritualities are born out of that, uh, the need of you are on a new land. You must work with this land. You can't pretend you're still over there. So the new world in many of these ways forced the traditions to adapt. And because of their adaptability, they survived. Right now in Asia, because of the communist governments, there's so many countries in which magic and the old shamanistic traditions were considered like anathema. They were wiped out by mm -hmm. the state. And I'm sure there's people practicing it in the villages, but officially, I mean, like China's com uh, atheist and yes. Vietnam atheist. You can't do tarot card, none of that. It's mm -hmm. not allowed. And even in Korea, uh, because there's a growing, like the elite, they're Christians. Like I mentioned how uh, the Catholics, they came back to Korea and they taught Catholicism to their own yeah. people. And it was the aristocracy who did it. So oftentimes the most educated and the missionaries came over to build colleges. So the most educated mm -hmm. people in Korea, they tend to be uh, Christian and they're very much against the entire magic thing. So I'm just wondering like what's going to happen in Asia when the governments finally decide we can't control this burgeoning spirituality, especially in a place like China. The mixing with capitalism is an influence that has to be explored. Yeah. Because when you start talking about these temples in Brazil, um, in Mexico, that are churches to Santísima Muerte in Mexico City, or to Teiro of Umbanda, Kimbanda, or Camumble in Brazil, they are property entities that need to pay their rent. So they're going to, this influences popular ideas because we talked about like the, the whitening of Brazil earlier. By the time you get to the 60s and 70s, the late 70s especially, you have the re-Africanization of Brazil where they were now purposely going in and looking at all the things that were Europeanized for public consumption and trying to re-Africanize them. So now they did the thing where they made Maria Padilla an African spirit and gave her an African name. We're like, but that was actually a common European witch goddess, witch goddess archetype. You had to cater to what was trendy or you would not get butts in the seats. So the traditional religions also, there are some Kandomle houses that are like always viewed to be like, no matter what, they're following this way. But they also sent people to Africa to go get initiated in new traditions and bring those back. And then they would Kandomleize them, Brazilianize them, use their own drum beats over the drum beats they just learned there and figure out how to meld it all into something that was publicly consumable so that they stayed in business. That side is... Um, not talked about as much in the spiritual phenomena. And if you think about like, if, if the Chinese market, for instance, starts to understand the capitalist possibilities within spirituality, maybe you get more like Sephora witch kits, but at the same time, tarot cards make a, sh a shit ton of money or people would not be continuing to print them and sell them. Right. You know, and there, it plays into the collectability factor and things like that. That side of it, that commoditization is a factor in Latin American spirituality, hugely so. It is a factor in Afro-Latin American and in Latin American spirituality in general. You know, a few years back, there was um, a popular kind of permutation of Kimbanda that was using an Argentinian cult of, of uh, a death spirit and kind of Kimbanda technology and brought it into a black metal current that became very popular for a while. And it influenced... Houses of Kimbanda and Umbanda in Brazil. And they wanted to, they started incorporating similar types of sigil graphics into their websites and talking about things in a kind of 
darker way of vocabulary in their English translations of things because it also drew people to the practice. I like looking at the Congolese inheritance of Kimbanda because that framework that's been there for so long is often ignored, but it's very obviously there. But there's still Yoruba overlay, and some some temples might emphasize the Congo side, some might emphasize a Yoruba overlay, some might emphasize an Umbanda overlay and say that these spirits are slaves to the Orisha and this is how they're all working. Some might mix in other spirits from different spiritist traditions, and that's what they do. And each flavor of each temple provides something new. But at the same time, there's people who go around saying, well, how is that all the same thing? It is a, it's confusing at first. There is no such thing as purity in this sense. Because, again, just like every act of reading is a necromantic act, because we're breathing our life into it, every time you learn something from an elder, you are changing it somehow. And if you don't know how you're changing it, that's on you, because you're going to change it in, in unconscious ways as well as conscious ways. You're going to think, man, like, oh, no, I'm going to use this ingredient now because this is easier to get. Well, you've changed it. What are you telling? What are you transmitting past that? And we're always transmitting how we act, how we, what our demeanor is as we teach. It's a living tradition in that way, and it, it, it will change. Kimbanda will look different in 20 years as it as it as it looks different than it was 20 years ago. That's why it's so important for me to, with my own godchildren and students, when I don't know something. I'm going to find out for you as best I can, and I will admit that I don't know it, because that's important. This, this, this saving face thing that happens a lot in magical, like, no, I think it's this way, and it's always going to be this way. Okay, what if tomorrow you're wrong? What's going to happen? You've just erased something. That is oral transmission. That is necromancy. That is reverence for the dead that came before us, upon whose shoulders we're standing. And you know, this also touches on, you know, very sensitive topic of cultural appropriation. There was a Supreme Court justice who said, I know pornography when I see it. Like, I can tell the difference between art and pornography. And it's the same way. Like, you can't really give a dictionary definition of what cultural appropriation is. It's like you can feel it, you can sense it. So what are some pointers on how a person who is an outsider mm -hmm. of these ATRs, how can they be respectful and not just appropriate? Uh, you'll get you'll get many answers from many different people, of course. You know, Orisha is its own unique thing because Orisha they view themselves as universal and accessible to everyone. They're kind of a meta paradigm of things. That doesn't mean that it is the same thing to have a statue in your house and say that it's Oshun. That is not how we think as Orisha priests. Oshun is in the diaspora in in freshwater rivers and in the consecrated shrines of the priests. There are many different versions of that, but going to nature and appealing to these deities in that way, everybody has a right to do that. But the question for me always is, if there's an intact priesthood of a deity or a spirit that I want to work with, why wouldn't I want to go study with them? Why do I want, like, if, let's say you have a, a, a belief that you could cut open someone's head and fix the seizures that they're having. Now, you could try and do that on your own, or you could perhaps go to med school and have a residency and build off of what has been done before. That side of transmission, you know, even within med school, you go to med school and then you have to do a residency where you're hands-on experience with someone. I wouldn't trust a neurosurgeon that only learned from books and just got straight A's. You want them to have done a residency. And these, the memorization of facts and secret information and blah, blah, blah that happens, spirit lists and what they like and things like that, that's transmittable via book. Sure. But the residency is the community and that transmission from someone. That side of it, I think, is no longer appropriation. It's actually cultural adaptation. You're learning to 
be a part of the culture. You're accepting that you need to adapt. Not It doesn't adapt to you. You adapt to it. I would say the easiest answer is to find someone that you trust that has a community around them that is respected. Now, you can't always believe what you hear about everybody. We, we can recognize when someone's just being trash-talked. But see how that person responds to that trash-talking is always interesting. If your heart is in the right place and you feel that you have a connection to certain spirits, put it to that spirit to help put you in the right path. But it means you have to keep your eyes open and see who might come. So, Jesse, what are three songs that you feel represent your magic the best? Uh, there's a song by a group called Tufaning called Build a Great Cliff. The lyrics talk about uh, build a great cliff and scale the walls of it. Tell me what you see. Tear it all down for me. And it always reminds me of a certain set of spirits in Kimbanda. Of, of what it is of like I want to see you achieve and then I want to be able to see you tear it all down because that's not what you are what's the choice just because a spirit tells you to do it do you have to you know what is what is the consequences of, of following advice or temptation or what that is I think the song that I come back to all the time just because of childhood memory of singing it of hearing my grandmother my my uncles my grandfather singing it is um, the Mexican folk song Llorona which deals with the crying woman myth and uh, I suppose there's a horror movie coming out now about her too but you know the Corona is the the boogeyman that we used to talk about when we were little of the woman who lived by the river that would drown children and the story is far more complex because every city where there's Chicanos, where there's Mexicans, will have a, a Llorona at the local river. With things like Kimbanda, with engaging with Santísima Muerte, with, with these different forces, the toll and the change that it takes in us, the loss of innocence that comes from wrestling with the devil. It can lead back to a state of bliss or blessing, but it is, there is a cost. How about the third song? Yeah, I had one picked. <laughs> and now I'm trying to remember what it was. That's so funny. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a tradition of early American music called harp singing. Late 1700s, early 1800s music was believed by many to be the first truly American music because it broke with conventional rules of how things could be arranged, but it was shape note music. And what that meant was that people would go around from town to town and teach you that the triangle meant this tone, and the square meant this tone, and the circle meant this tone, was a helpful way to read sheet music. And they could put up a sheet music in front of you, and you could break people into four parts, and they would start singing harmony. It starts off with, uh, am I born to die? to lay this body down, and the whole thing is about mortality. And the lyrics are tragic, but I think ultimately the first thing that motivates us to a spirituality or to a religion in many ways is death and the momento mori of it, of the finality of this life and what that means. Santisma Muerte is a big part of my life, and that kind of consciousness of Mexican death that she is, and is all I am here to, to become 
a body in the, in the earth. What am I going to do with the time I have? I'm also a, a Freemason, and this is a, a, a reminder of mortality there is a huge, huge concept. Kimbanda in dealing with the dead and, and understanding our time and our limited time here. Orisha trying to give you advice to make the most out of your time here so that you can become a king or a queen in your little kingdom and rule your life. Truly rule it. So guys, tell us what you think. Um, I'm sure that for a lot of you, maybe most of you, Kimbanda, that's a completely new tradition that you've just heard about from this video. So Jesse, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, this was such a cool talk. I mean, there's just a lot of things that I learned about Kimbanda, and also it's so nice to be able to riff with a magician who is bicultural and bilingual and who kind of is coming from a tradition that isn't so much like, oh, you know, the spirits are pure, everything's pure, la la, white light, and it's yeah. more like, no, actually, things adapt, spirits adapt, you adapt, the dead adapt, and everything's mm -hmm. just growing and evolving, and things are dynamic like that. I, I kind of like that sort of tradition, and I find that a lot of people today, a lot of magicians, they try to go back to how it was before, when it was old and pure and clean and or what they think was like pure and clean and not complicated i think it's um the, it's very built into the western psyche this idea of the fall of man or the fall from the garden of eden and this nostalgia for something that might not actually be the case a lot of these traditions kimbanda orisha uh santisma muerte the curanderismo this looking at the world as it is i'm not pretending that the world is heaven if you're pretending you're starting from a place where it's all wonderful in that place, you're ignoring the things that actually can hurt you. We have to take those and find out that they don't have power over us fully anymore because we have incorporated them. We've, we've transmuted them. And that is also something that's not a one-time thing. That's a decision every day. That's a wrestling of, you think you know who Pombajira is? She will find a way over and over again to show you who she is with a new set of circumstances, with a new person in your life that gives you problems that you thought you mastered. Because that's what this life is. We're constantly being tested. And I would rather consciously engage it than unconsciously ignore it. I appreciate the tradition that puts such emphasis on that, on growth, rather than just going back into a, a little time slot in some sort of like, I don't know, like alternative universe where history was clean and the Greek statues were just white marble instead of how they really were, <laughs> right? Brightly colored. Parthenon was pink, yeah. <laughs> yeah <exactly. laughs> hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Witches and Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers, they're super affordable and flexible. Your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan. Signing off.